Well, in American football, there are two positions called guard. A right guard and a left guard. I don't know much about football, but I have learned that when the plays are designed, this is where it begins. The guard's job is to protect the quarterback from the incoming defensive line and the linebackers doing pass plays, as well as creating openings for the running backs to head through. Blocking, guarding, fundamental to football. And guards must do their jobs in order for the team to advance the ball and to protect the quarterback. The same is true in our Christian faith. Guarding the faith is critical for the advancement of the gospel. Now, last week we began a sermon series on the book of 1 Timothy, a series entitled God's House, God's Rules. Paul wrote this letter to a young pastor to instruct him on how one ought to behave in the household of God. Last week, we looked at the overall purpose of the letter and the overall theme of this book of 1 Timothy. Because a church is God's household, he gets to make the rules. Well, this morning, I want us to begin our study of the book of 1 Timothy by looking at the first thing that Paul will address in this letter, namely, guarding the faith. I encourage you to open Scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We will read from verse 1 to verse 11. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 1028. 1028. The word of the Lord for us this morning is the following. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, peace, and mercy from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than the work of God, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good, if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our congregation. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin listening to his word. Father, we do thank you that you have given to us clear rules, clear instructions of how to behave in your household. And we thank you that we have these words that speak not only to, to churches throughout centuries, but they speak to us as well today. Lord, we do pray that you would talk to us, that you would confront us, and you would encourage us in your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, the first major command that Paul gave Timothy was about guarding the faith. That's what Paul asked Timothy to stay, to do when he asked him to stay in Ephesus. And now he's writing the same command. Look at verse 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Namely, I've done this before, Timothy. As I've urged you when, I, when we were in Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Why? For what purpose? So that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. It is amazing, friends, that Paul did not say to Timothy to stay in Ephesus 
to focus on evangelism and outreach. Paul told Timothy to stay in Ephesus to guard the faith, to oppose those who teach false doctrines. Friends, if the gospel will advance in Ephesus, Paul says, in other words, it must be guarded. Guarding the faith, dear friends, may sound like a defensive job. It may sound like the opposite of outreach or evangelism. But, just like in the world of football, a guard's job is not simply to protect the quarterback, but also to create openings for the running backs to head through, so also guarding the faith is critical for the advancement of the gospel in every church. More so, as we saw last week, if the church is the pillar and foundation of truth, then guarding the truth is of a primary importance for the life of the church. And this is where we begin the detailed study of the life of the church in 1 Timothy. With this command, guard the truth. Now, the text we read will answer two questions about guarding the truth, which we also need to consider. Why guard the truth? For what purpose to guard the truth? And second, how to guard the truth? How to guard the truth? But why guard the truth? The answer Paul gives us very plainly in verse 5 is to promote love. Now, do you ever think about guarding the doctrines of the faith as a way to promote love? Honestly. Most of the time, Christians think that if we get too bogged down in doctrines, it will lead to divisions. Some even say, they have this slogan, that doctrines divide. Have you heard that? So let's not get bogged down into doctrines, because we will just end up dividing. And yet, Paul says to Timothy, in verse 5, black and white, the goal of this command is love. In other words, Paul is saying that the purpose for which you are to command false teachers to stop from teaching falsehood is to promote love. But let me ask you, isn't confrontation the opposite of love? Think about it. According to many cultural norms today, non-confrontation is love. There are some people who refuse to confront because they think that confronting is the opposite of loving. And that's why there are people who think the church should never confront anyone for the danger of appearing to be unloving. Now, we need to clarify here. Paul is not saying that confrontation for any, any small stuff is an act of love. As a matter of fact, if you're the kind of person who likes to confront people about anything and the smallest things and, and the smallest details and you're always confronting, something is wrong with you. You have a spirit of disunity. You always bring out the things that are different. But that's not Paul, what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about exposing falsehood and false teaching and confronting that. And that has the aim and purpose of love. When God's truth is at stake, confrontation is an act of love. Friends, when believing the truth or when living the truth is at stake in our lives, confrontation should be done in order to protect and to promote love. Do you see this? One of the reasons why we have a hard time uh, chewing on this concept is because we think of love as merely acceptance of others. We think of love as the mere acceptance of the other. Now, while biblical love includes that view for sure, it also goes way beyond it. Biblical love has a different foundation than worldly love, than the kind of love that you see in movies, the kind of love that you see in magazines. Biblical love has a different foundation, a different source 
a different fabric. Worldly love is based on having something in common with the other. So how can you love someone with whom we have nothing in common with? Right? That's what the world would say. Worldly love is based on feelings and emotions. So when those feelings and emotions are out of your marriage, we typically conclude, I no longer love you. And we forget to realize that love in the Bible is not based on emotions. It's based on commitment. Movies and worldly love would say when emotions are out, love is out. Worldly love is based on allowing the other to be what they are. Here's another one. Worldly love is allowing the other to be what they are. And don't try to change them. I've heard this one. If you truly loved me, you would not try to change me. That's worldly love. But the biblical notion of love has a different foundation. In our text, we will see three characteristics of biblical love. Now, the Bible may have a few others, but in our text, we see three of these characteristics. First of all, look at verse 5. Biblical love comes from a pure heart. So biblical love is not mere sentimentalism or affections or acceptance. It goes beyond it. Biblical love has its source in a heart that has been cleansed by sin. A heart that has been freed from the power of sin. Now, there are people in this world who are very loving. But their love comes not from the purity of their hearts. They may love simply because they think life is easier lived when they love. It's a utilitarian view of love. Or they may love for the results that love brings them. Husbands may want to love their wives simply because they want to be loved. And the reason why we love one another is just so that we can scratch our backs to one another. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. I love you, you love me. That is the kind of love we often see today. Or some people may love because they simply want to appear as loving. It's a virtue to appear as loving. But biblical love, friends, can only be experienced by those who have experienced God's grace in their lives and whose hearts have been cleansed by sin. A clean heart issues a different quality of love. That's why biblical love does not settle simply for a loving behavior, but for clean motivations behind our acts of love. Let me ask you, do you love one another just to get along? Sometimes even in churches, we may have this idea. You know what? Let's just love one another so that we can get along. Or do you love one another just because the Bible commands you to? I mean, it is a command for sure. No question. But do you love just because it's your duty to love? While the desire to get along is not bad, while the desire to want to obey the Bible is not bad, it's not enough. The reason why we need to love one another is because we have been cleansed by God. By the way, today we will celebrate baptism. Some baptism has a number of meanings, but one of them is that as we go down in the water, we are being, it's a symbol of being cleansed by God and having cleansed hearts. That's the meaning of baptism. It is a washing away of the sin. Again, baptism itself does not do that. Baptism is a symbol of the washing away of our sins so that we may have a clean heart, so that we can have a different quality of love towards God and towards others. A cleansed heart produces a different quality of love. Do you love just because you want to come across as loving? Or do you love to get something in return? Or do you love just because it's your Christian duty to love? Let me ask you, is your motivation behind love the fact that God has cleansed your heart? A second characteristic of biblical love 
is that it comes from a good conscience. Now, if we can understand a clean heart as a good source for good love, what about good conscience? Why is a good conscience an important source of biblical love? Well, in the book of Hebrews, we're told that the Old Testament sacrifices were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipers. But when Christ came and brought his own body as a sacrifice, his blood was able to cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. In other words, one of the effects of Jesus' death on the cross was that it made possible the cleansing of our conscience, a good conscience. Freed from the guilt of sin, from the weight of judgment, is the result of repenting and believing that Christ's blood played that Christ's blood paid for all our guilt. My friend, let me ask you this morning, do you have a cleansed conscience before God? Some of you feel too guilty before God to turn to Him. You may feel like your sin is, is too big for God to handle or that you have done it again. After num and I'm not sure how many times, and you just, you feel like your sin is just too big for God to handle. Friend, on the cross, Jesus paid for the worst sins you can ever think of. Yes, your sin is an offense to God, but Jesus took that offense upon himself so that in his death, he could cleanse your conscience before God and give a new life that will serve the living God. The Bible says that if we repent of our sins and believe that Jesus died for us, He will cleanse us of all our sin and give us a certainty that we are children of God, belonging to His family and having the certainty of...